When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome to this episode of the New Books Network. We're here with Dr. Matthew Kruger, a professor in the theology department of Boston College and the author of the series Triptych of Nothingness. We're here to discuss the completion of the series and discuss What the Living Know, a novel of suicide and philosophy. The premise is that science has granted eternal life and use to all, and that every need is met. Thus, death is unnecessary and as such becomes optional and celebrated when chosen. However, the main character, 10,000-year-old Warren, has fought off the urge to die but begins to contemplate making this choice for himself. So hopefully I got that summary mostly right. And... So thanks for being on this podcast, Matt, and look forward to talking with you about your work. Great. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start off with the question of, so like, where did this idea for this book and series sort of come from? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of influences um, that led to the creation of this book. The first one is really, um, I read something about a speech given by David Foster Wallace that described it as anti-suicide. And I thought that was very interesting because at that point, I, he had already committed suicide and it was kind of not necessarily expected, but um, this led to this question of like, how do you make an argument about why or why not to commit suicide? Like why live or um, yeah, what kind of, what's the best way to live? Uh, and this is a, something I'd already thought about via Camus, uh, Albert Camus' work. And he says suicide is the, the fundamental philosophical question, whether or not you should kill yourself or whether it's better to live. Um, and for him, of course it is. And, um, and it, it was an issue that was personal to me, um, just growing up from a young age, uh, for whatever reason, had to deal with depression and uh, suicidal thoughts and work through them and kind of figure out a way to make myself live, to get myself to live. Um, and so that all led to this kind of idea of like, let's write a book about this idea of like um, encountering suicide as a problem and saying, you know, why, why do I want to live as a fundamental question? So that's kind of what this, uh, this novel is about. It's a, it's, it's a philosophical premise, but um, very much telling a story of that kind of uh, engagement with suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, I feel like it feels important to mention that 
there's like no simple answer. And it's not that many people have like those types of like invasive thoughts of suicidal ideation. Um, I think many, like myself included, definitely like struggled and still struggle with that, but too. Um, hence why I found some definitely sections so hard to read. So maybe we'll like sort of jump into to, to that point, um, especially as I got to certain parts when like the main characters, loved ones were choosing death, I felt like I had to pause for a long time, like months before you like reached out to me to see how things were going. And again, sorry about that. And thanks for checking in. Um, <laughs> but you gave some advice and inspiration to me then um, that you said that you also share with the classes that you assign your book to. So maybe before we get too, too far into the interview, you could share some of that advice um, to the listeners and sort of explain why. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it is a tough book to read. Um, and there are reasons for that. I'll get to that more. The, the thing I told my students, some of whom were like, why are we reading this? Uh, <laughs> it's you can just watch the movie Soul, the Disney Pixar movie Soul that came out recently. And it's kind of about a similar idea. Um, and what that movie talks about is uh, this main character who really just wants to live for a single purpose to become a famous jazz musician. And that's all that consumes his life is his purpose, his idea of purpose. And in the meantime, he forgets to live, you know, forgets to make connections with others, forgets all the good things in his life, um, forgets just life itself. Um, and so that, that movie does a good job of dismantling this idea of purpose and the kind of restrictions of purpose, um, which is what I want to do fundamentally in this book is just kind of say, if you're living for purpose or living for this kind of restricted sense of purpose, um, living for meaning, living, living for all these things, which are kind of, well, they're kind of limiting. Um, but more importantly, they're just kind of, they end up being a little bit dangerous um, in a certain sense that uh, disappointment and um, kind of, yeah, loss and uh, those difficulties can mount and distract you from the opportunity for living, which is still in front of you. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's what's behind this. Um, so that's the kind of the piece of advice that's like, it, you know, there's, there's death that we'll always encounter and difficulties we'll always encounter in life, but, um, don't forget to live. <laughs> yeah. I think that that, I feel like that can be a hard, hard thing to, to sort of remember, um, Sort of maybe like getting back to, I know you had mentioned um, Camus and um, how that sort of played a role in the um, formation of this book. And I feel like you saying that kind of reminds me of like how, at least I interpret how he kind of did philosophy in terms of like, yes, it's like there's philosophical pursuits that you do, but like alongside that and maybe what's more impactful are like stories and like sort of living out and like the, like that essay Summer in Algiers, I feel like is one of the essays I feel like I, I return to. And luckily it's like part of the compilation of like the myths of Sisyphus like book that I have. So I feel like they, they go together so well. So I guess, um, what do you think um, sort of like the role of like storytelling or fiction work um, plays in philosophy? Yeah, I think uh, it's crucial. And I'm definitely uh, very directly influenced by Camus and Sartre and the people who are these, these novelists as well as philosophers. Um, and I really like that idea. I think the the goal of philosophy, properly speaking, is not knowledge or clarity or proper reasoning. It's about living differently. And so, how however we get to this goal of living differently or you know living well, um, 
whatever means we need to do to get to that point, then we should use them. And I think uh, literature and and fiction is a great tool for doing that. And I think that's that's something that's been true since you know Aesop's Fables and stuff like that. So you know, going back to the, kind of the beginning of these things, um, tell a good story, and uh, people can be changed by it. Um, so yeah, that's I'm, I'm hoping to kind of participate in that tradition. I think that's kind of some people feel a little bit mixed about having their their fiction be philosophical as well or um, moralizing. But I think there's there's a good tradition of that in existence. Yeah, definitely. I feel like stories can often like teach much more than doctrine, right? Like I feel like that's also like the premise of like the Bible, right? Like there's interplay of parables and poetry and stories that teach a lesson, obviously alongside the laws, but I feel like with there's so much like ambiguity and nuance in in life and in texts that like it makes sense to have like the embodiment of the ideas shown. Um, yeah. Well, one of the things you can do is uh, show the failure in philosophy, right? And that's kind of like a big part of this book, too, right? Uh, uh, maybe most philosophers don't want to admit it, but we're all failures uh, pretty much all the time at living up to our philosophy. Uh, there's a great deal of philosophers who have no idea what their philosophy actually says, you know, in terms of actually how they behave. They, they say all these great things about, like, hospitality or kindness, and they end up being total assholes to each other, um, which is kind of funny. But um, so this is like... To actually do philosophy would be to actually live a life, and to actually live a life means to have moments where you fail. And so, I can you can talk about that. You can talk about how you would fail, and all the ways in which um, you'll come up short, and all the ways in which you'll need to renew yourself. You can do that in a novel, in a way that you can do you can't really do as easily um, in a text. It would be hard to kind of <laughs> describe that sort of failure that would happen. Yeah, I feel like that that sense of renewal maybe ties into. I think this work as well. I feel like just because like literally everyone can live forever, there's like this premise that you could just renew over and over and over again. But many and most of the characters don't or find that they don't want to. Um, so I guess maybe we could sort of get into sort of their reasons for why they can't or why they end up choosing to do die and to not keep that renewal process. Yeah, I think, I mean, a big thing is in this book, it's the time span is different, right? That that's a big thing, right? You're, we're talking about forever. Um, and I think if you start to break down how life works for us now, then it makes a lot more sense why these people would struggle or why we would struggle put into the context of forever. Um, that uh, we all have a narrative in life that we are raised a certain age, that we go to school at a certain point and that, you know, our parents raise us or whoever raises us. And then those people get old and we take their place that there's kind of a position that we slot into and then they die. And then we are you know, so on and so forth, that there's a pattern to existence that makes sense to us. Uh, go into the future in this book and there's no pattern anymore because everybody just lives forever and everybody ages until they're 30 years old and then they stop. Uh, and so you age to a point where your parents are the same age as you. And um, this is true even in our own lives, but you realize at some point that your parents aren't wiser simply because they're older, that they're really just people. Um, and if you were the same age of them as them, if you looked the same way uh, that they look, if you didn't have to care for them, the reasons for maintaining that relationship and that connection aren't the same. And it's really hard to go from having a parent be a parent to having a parent be a friend. Um, and I think the same would be true uh, in this kind of, in my fictional world. So, uh, what I really kind of 
try and express in this book is that the, the st- typical reasons for living don't really function as good reasons when you put life on an endless time span. That if you live for family, your family's not going to last forever in this, or it's going to be really hard to make it last forever. Because what bonds us is this kind of structure of birth, connection, death, um, that kind of process is what makes a family make sense. And if you get rid of that process or at least stretch it out over a millennia, then why do we need it? The same is true about having goals and purposes in life, that if people set a specific task uh, for themselves, if they're like, I'm put in this earth to become a famous you know, fashion designer, it's like, that's, that's great. Go do it. And you can go do it and you become successful. You can become famous and you can be at the top of the fashion world for, you know, 30, 50, 70 years. But at some point you'll run out of new ideas or even more likely that society will grow bored of your ideas. Uh, they'll look for something new. They'll look for the new trendy thing. Uh, and then you'll be passe. And so you won't be the same person that you were. You won't be the same level of fame that you were, you won't be the same level of excellence that you were. And it's hard to do something when you're not as good as it, uh, as you once were. Uh, and so what do you do then? Well, in this world, in our world, you would be like, okay, well, I'll just get old and die. And then, like, I've lived my purpose. It's okay. I can go to my death. Uh, you can hang on. You know, there's a lot of fashion designers who hung on for a long time. You know, Carl Lagerfeld, they kind of trotted him out for a long time, right? Um, he wasn't looking so healthy towards the end, but there he was. Um, okay. You can do that in, in a time span of a hundred years. Now try doing that for a thousand years, right? Like you can't really hang on for a thousand years doing the same thing that's now empty. That's you've now seen that you're not as good as you once were, that you're not as excellent as you once were. Um, so what do you do next? Well, you can look for a new purpose. Um, the same, same cycle will happen over again. So these questions of purpose seem to exhaust themselves. The questions of family seem to exhaust themselves. Uh, romantic love is another option. I think people have, you know, like we're soulmates, we're, we're destined for each other. That's what's going to make life meaningful is that I have this one person um, for me. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I mentioned in the book that, you know, the longest marriage might be maybe 10,000 years. Maybe there's somebody who could do that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I love my wife. But thinking of 10,000 years is uh, that's a long time. And it, it just seems like, would that be enough? Would just like this idea that like your soulmates be enough to keep you permanently together? Maybe. Um, so maybe there's somebody who could, who could do that, but um, wouldn't you want to live other lives? Uh, wouldn't you want to try something new? Um, like even just as an example in my life, it's like, I really want to live, I don't know, some places that my wife hates. She hates anything kind of rural. So if I wanted to go like live in the, the woods for a few decades, like just to try it out, uh, it's like, oh, well, I just can't, can't do that. And I can't do that forever. So like, <laughs> that seems unfair. Um, so this desire for novelty, I think, would come in at some point, even with relationships. And these are the kind of, I think these are the core things that people live for, for family, for romantic love, for a purpose, a job, an occupation. Uh, if you stretch those things out for 10,000 years, uh, for eternity, it's hard to find a reason to live uh, that really satisfies those answers. Um, and that's why the people in the story are ending their lives, because they've done everything that they wanted to do. They've accomplished something at some point they were good at, and they've done that. They've been in love. They've had a great love, and it's over now. And is that all you want out of life? And maybe, maybe. Yeah, I feel like I 
I kind of struggled with some of those or like reading some of those things. Like, I feel like I had this idea that like things are eternal, that like marriage is this like this eternal thing till death do us part. Like, and I feel like I, maybe I had these thoughts when I was reading the book, but I feel like it really concretized what you were just saying it there is like when things are brought out to infinity, they just like don't make sense anymore. Or like some traditions, like when as time progresses, just like don't, make sense anymore and I and I feel like or in sort of like looking at this book and the other things that you've written that kind of reminds me of just like postmodernism of like rejecting some of the old of the old ties to us I mean like particularly religion or other other traditions as well um but I feel like what you just said there or I, I feel like I came to learn and appreciate in the book that like tying back to purpose and having like the fulfillment of that purpose is sort of like the point um like I know on the on the cover of the book you have like the iconic image of Socrates pointing up while he's like reaching out for the, the hemlock. Um, it's been a while since I've thought of that scene, but I feel like part of the takeaway, um, besides just following the law is good, um, is that Socrates felt like he had fulfilled his role. So he was like ready to move on to the next thing or the unknown unknown thing that's next. Yeah. Yeah. He's a I mean he's an interesting case. Um and uh, I kind of, um, well, I, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but, you know, one of the other kind of sources of inspiration, yes, David Foster Wallace, he's not like my favorite person, but uh, Hemingway, Hunter S. Thompson, uh, um, Kurt Cobain, um, and Socrates, for that matter, famous suicides, right? And it, that's what Socrates' death is, is a suicide. Uh, they expect him to accept exile, and he's like, no, I'm, I'm done, I'm out. Uh, maybe to prove a point, but um, he's choosing his death, uh, and it, it <laughs> is effective. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the thing. Um, is it better that he chooses to die? Um, and uh, maybe, maybe in certain perspectives, maybe if you want to preserve this idea of purpose and uh, a structure to life, then yeah, yeah, then it then it is better he dies. But that makes. That makes its own set of problems, right? Where you where you have to say, um, what is human life? And human life is to fulfill a purpose. And once that purpose has been exhausted, then there is no purpose anymore, and, and it's good you, you die. Um, or you know, even the more chilling kind of approaches to that are, you know, you have a child that can't do much, uh, severe dis- disability, and you say, well, this child has no purpose in existence. Um, human life is about fulfilling something about doing something about achieving something and this child doesn't do that so what's what's the use um so i think there's that kind of idea of purpose is sometimes it's useful but i don't i just don't think that's what human life is actually about um so that's what i want to wanted to push back on so yeah it's postmodern. uh it is questioning that kind of narrative the narrative and meta narrative about how we should live and what humans are made for um, but it's not nihilistic because I'm, I'm not going for, <laughs> uh, everything is pointless. Um, everything is kind of pointless in a certain sense, but not, not, not actually in that way. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's interesting. And I feel like I uh, agree or see that like very hyper focus on utility and, and the limits, uh, definitely the limits of that, how it can restrict you to think that you need to do you need to do something. I feel like going back to that, the, the soul movie, 
like the little 22 character is just like, well, I don't have a thing. So maybe mm -hmm. I shouldn't be a person. Right. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's, that's cool too. Yeah. And so this is, I don't know if you want to jump to this already, but this is kind of what, <laughs> what uh, Warren remembers. I think it's something he already knew, but something he'd forgotten because of his, the hardship that he went through, which is losing a loved one and losing a daughter and losing a one. So a lot of loss, which causes him to kind of forget the method of his life, the method of his existence. Um, 22, uh, when she visits Earth, right, in Soul in the movie, uh, has moments where she's like, this is cool. Like, this is great. <laughs> and it, they're not all positive moments. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they are positive, like eating pizza and being like, pizza is amazing because um, pizza is amazing. And then there are negative moments, like getting pushed on the subway and like having the kind of tension of riding the subway, like that wouldn't experience that is to ride on the New York subway, which also true. Um, but it's that kind of combination of just being alive, having that kind of those, those moments where you're like, well, this is, this is something. Um, and that's what the main character, Joe, in that movie forgets. And that's what eventually gets, you know, 22 to find kind of a spark of thing that she was missing. But uh, that is what I think we all miss from life is just kind of uh, a moment to moment perspective. Um, can you be in the moment? And so there's a lot of good philosophy, which is philosophy of the moment. Um, one of the quotes I have in the book is from Marcus Aurelius. And he's like, you know, whether you should live 10 years or a thousand years or whatever it is, I'm going to butcher it, but um, no one ever really lives any life, but this life that they live right now, that like there is no past in you know, Stoic philosophy. There is no future that doesn't exist yet. There's nothing that is actually out there. There's nothing that's actually behind you. It's just right now. Um, and so if you live in the right now, uh, why would you ever want to stop? Or why would you ever think that you need to stop? Um, why would that even be an argument to you? Um, so that's that's kind of that ability to be in, be in the moment sounds kind of like a platitude right now, but uh, <laughs> it's a little harder to get to in the book, I think. But uh, to be in the moment, uh, to see uh, life as it's happening, uh, to connect with it in that way, and to be freed of kind of objections to the way life works, these are the ways that you can kind of uh, the ways that Warren, at least in the book, uh, counters his desire for death. Yeah, I found going through the book really interesting that I feel like he sort of, as people say that they want to die or like ask him for advice on how he's able to live as long as he's lived, he sort of gives those answers. And yet some people remain like unconvinced by that or even like towards the end when, or sort of like the opposite of that, when towards the end where he's just like, no, I think I am going to die. All of his friends are like, no, you should. Like, what What do you mean? Like, you have to keep, you're the one that, like, we've all been turning to for, to, like, learn these ideas of, like, this almost radical acceptance. So I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what the real question is, though, but uh, maybe, like. Yeah, well, it's something that, so I think you, you can't, I can, I can tell you, right, uh, oh, live in the moment or live for the moment or whatever, these kinds of empty phrases and, um that means nothing to you if you don't do it, right? That just doesn't, unless you see it for yourself. And that's, uh, again, that's, we were talking about the beginning about like what philosophy should be doing or, and why fiction is important. It's, it's because, um, you know, I can describe an experience or a moment and that's the goal rather than 
a concept, right, rather than an idea. Um, and so uh, it can give you a better direction or better idea of what, we're, what we can look towards. Um, and so that's what Warren's having our time. He's like, people are asking him for arguments. Like, here's what, what's the reason why I should live? And it's like, I can't give you like reasons. Um, I can tell you how, or maybe you can't even say this. I can tell you how I exist, but I can't really tell you that. I can show you how I exist. I can, I can be a certain way. And I think that's what his, his friends see in him, right? That, that he can live in a way that not everybody can, that not everybody uh, is successful at. Uh, and that's really the hard part. Um, there's a whole backstory, which most of it got cut out kind of with uh, his teacher, that his, his philosopher, kind of uh, Milnius in the, in the book, that uh, Milnius was this great philosopher of death and one of the, the most important philosophers of their time. And he's the first one who really fully encountered with death and really gave good arguments for why you should live and like and how to do it. And he ends up killing himself, of course, because that's you know, that's what everyone does in the book. Um, and so uh, what does Warren do? Well, Warren actually follows Milanese's philosophy. The, the problem isn't with this philosophy. The problem is with actually living it. Um, and that's something that we all, again, that we all fail to do is actually implementing a philosophy, actually making it real is the hard part. Um, and that doesn't mean that you need to be a great philosophical mind. It can be somebody who's very, very much not philosophical can actually be a better philosopher in the sense of somebody actually manifesting this practice. Um, and so that's, that's the difference between being able to write and talk and conceive and think about things and being able to actually do it. Um, and so Warren can actually do it. Sometimes he has a hard time talking about it. Hmm. I guess, what do you think the role of having that coherence sort of is because it sounds like if he's not able to sort of like lay out and like put into words explicitly what the the philosophy is but somehow he sort of maybe intuits maybe is the right word um Mm -hmm. what what it means to put those uncommunicable practices uh into into action Mm -hmm. yeah um well it is a problem right uh this is something that I'm doing more and more in my academic work. It's kind of like a flag of book, which will come out probably in like three years or so from now. But um, on this problem of nihilism, looking at people like Nietzsche and Heidegger and uh, John McMurray and a few others. But uh, the kind of the answer that you find in their works, uh, hidden usually, is that you have this, this Nietzsche has its own element of submission that uh, you can't will meaning in life that that as a as a method doesn't work that if you're like let me rationally analyze all my options for what is meaningful and then let me choose one and say this is meaningful and then go with it and it's like well you that's just solipsistic right that's just a a self-completing loop you've just wished to have meaning and that's it um well that doesn't really get you anywhere that gets you exactly into the, the problems we have in our current world so uh what do we do next well uh, we give up, um, we give in. Uh, and so people quite often accuse Nietzsche of nihilism and Heidegger of being passive and all this kind of stuff, but that's not actually what they're doing. Uh, they're saying that this assertion, this kind of enlightenment, uh, ontology of human enlightenment, uh, philosophical anthropology that is based off of will and assertion and reasoning to, to certain ends, uh, doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, that there needs to be something responsive in the way we actually 
figure life out. That if we listen, if we receive, if we quiet ourselves and reduce objections to the way things are, if we encounter nature, if we encounter others, uh, and with an openness to what we are given, then we are given life. Um, and what is given is not d- determined, right? If Heidegger says, here's, here's what happens when you, you give up, when you do Gelassenheit, when you kind of let go, it's just this, then, it, then he's not doing that. He's telling you the answer. Um, but if he says, here's a method for how you get to a point where you can let go and, and wait and let others be and receive their being and respond to it and care, uh, then you've got a method for life which is filled with meaning indirectly. Uh, and it's filled with meaning in a way that's not certain. It's in flux. But you have activity which is given to you. You have direction which is given to you. Um, so that's that's kind of uh, I read most of the stuff after writing the book, but uh, <laughs> so it was kind of uh, fortuitous that it overlapped. But that's kind of what it what this is. This question of like, can I assert meaning? Can I say this is the purpose of life? No. Uh, it, people do it all the time. People that of course do that all the time. But uh, is that in the end convincing? Um, does it have any weight outside of yourself? I don't think it does. Um, what what does have weight is when you kind of can, can achieve this this place where it's not passive, it's not active, it, middle voiced. It's kind of this happening, uh, a responsive event uh, where something is given to you and you react to it um, in light of it. Um, and that's that's what life can be like. That uh, this kind of reactive sort of existence is good enough, um, and it's good enough to say, "Here's why I keep on living." Mm-hmm. I feel like as as part of this the on the this this book is described as being a completion of a of a series um the triptych of nothingness and even though i haven't i've not read the two other books one of them sounded like it was more about what that practice actually looks like so i guess i'm sort of curious um what some of those influences were and sort of what those practices that you found um, either for yourself or as like more like generalizable quote unquote objective statements yeah. about yeah. what that method could look like. Yeah. So that's a, the first book is a book of practices of spiritual exercises for the postmodern Christian. And it's um, yeah, it's Christian and, but it's the sources are not necessarily all Christian. Um, you know, primary source for Christian stuff is mostly mystical stuff, stuff considered mystical. So Meister Eckhart, um, earlier figures, Gregor of Nyssa, that kind of stuff. Um, that would be the main inspiration. Um, but mostly Zen Buddhist philosophy is like my main kind of, I don't know, resource. Uh, Nishitani Keiji, who's a Japanese philosopher. Um, Nishida Kitaro is another one uh, from that period. Those are the two kind of major thought influences. And then the kind of historical Zen Buddhism stuff. And then uh, early Chinese texts like the Zhuangzi and... Um, uh, Lao Tzu, um, the, the kind of, uh, yeah, early Taoist thought. Um, a lot of that stuff is kind of my main, that's my main kind of intellectual influence there. Um, and uh, part of the reason why I like them so much is that they are, they're in a sense kind of post-modern before post-modern, um, which is maybe misrepresenting them a little bit, but uh, they have a different sort of sensibility to things. They're not they're not this uh, modernity. They don't have the kind of weight of enlightenment thought corrupting, <laughs> so to speak. Sorry, I, my philosophical biases are showing. Um, 
but that's they don't have the kind of sensibility. There's a much greater comfort with skepticism. There's a much greater comfort with passivity, with having things being dictated to us. And um, that sort of uh, approach to things is something that really appeals to me. So uh, somebody read that first book of exercise and they're like, this is very Buddhist um, for a work of Christian thought. And, uh, yeah, it is. Um, it's not just Buddhist. It's uh, Buddhist and Christian and Stoic. There's a lot of Stoic stuff in there too. Um, but that book really works on de- deconstructing itself, the taking apart what you think you are um, and making yourself open. Um, and uh, that's a lot of hard work uh, to actually go through that process. Um, taking apart all the kind of conceptions and stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, taking apart our conceptions of God and the kind of the, the stories that we tell about God in the modern world, which um, there's a great phrase, a therapeutic moralistic deism that's used to describe what most people think of God uh, these days, that is God is a therapist and God is the moral source and that's it. So it's like God is the one you turn to when things are bad and God is the one who justifies your moral actions and that's about it for in terms of what God does. Whereas it's it's way more open-ended than that in tr- the tradition. It's not just this God is... A therapy bud who you can t- chat to when stuff gets tough. So uh, that's that's something that I'm looking to take apart in that book. Um, and the second one just kind of expands more of it. The second one's really a reading of scripture, doing a Christian theology in light of Zen Buddhist philosophy. So it's really saying like, well, actually, it, it's taking those two Zen Buddhist philosophers I mentioned, Hidero, um Nishida and Nishitani, and they read the scriptures a fair amount because they were trying to put Japanese thought and dialogue with Western thought in general, um, and just kind of looking at some of the places they read the scriptures and doing a similar method of reading it. So being able to read, doing a Zen reading of Christian thought, essentially. So, yeah. Um, so that is what leads to this book <laughs> in a weird way. Um, it doesn't necessarily sound uh, direct, and you know the characters are not very Christian uh, in this uh, novel, um, that it's not religious. I don't think it has a religious vibe to you. I don't know if you thought that about that but um it's uh the the way religion is constructed in the novel is yeah very much uh, i guess you could say postmodern it's about practice um it's not about belief uh that i think belief is something that's uh almost almost secondary to what religion actually is about um that you know having a correct view of god or a correct doctrine uh, is really not something that I'm super enthusiastic about um, with suitable qualifications. Uh, that's not what the important part of life is, I don't think, because um, you can't think God correctly anyway, so it's silly to waste time trying to get it right. Um, but what you can do or what you, you can do uh, or what you should do, uh, look for ritual, look for... Um, practice, look for changes in behavior, look for false beliefs which about life which kind of prevent you from being open to things. Um, that's what religion can teach uh, even without uh, all of the kind of doctrine and dogma that persists. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot there. And I know I actually hadn't come across that much um, like Eastern philosophy in connection with like more Christian ideas, but so that's that's super cool. I feel like I really want to go back and like read those other two two works now and see see what's there. But um, 
really like that idea of like liturgy or practice like over belief as such. I think that it can be really hard to, I mean, even not even in a religious context, be able to let go of assumptions and actually come to a more honest sense of what the world is or what truth is. Um, but having a, a solid practice or a solid foundation that that seems to ring true, at least in my experience, I feel like as a brief tangent, I feel like I'm sort of like drawn back to Catholic roots a lot of the times because I'm like, oh, like that practice is like familiar. It's like grounding. Um, so I guess um, how in the sort of maybe trying to tie it back to this book, um, sort of what um, practices does like the main character do to like to get to that point to keep living, to keep being open, to keep 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 going. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the most central practice is like what we consider cognitive behavioral therapy, right? essentially like it's about processing, uh, processing your emotions, talking yourself through what is happening, uh, being able to separate yourself from stuff directly, which is something I take from Stoic thought, something I take from Buddhist thought, something I take from Christian thought, that there's a, there's a long pre-psychological developments uh, tradition of like, how do you get to talk to yourself and be aware of yourself? How do you actually pay attention to yourself? So there's a religious route to that. Um, and then you go into the liturgical stuff. Um, there's, there's a couple of French philosophers right now whose names I'm forgetting, but who are big into this idea of uh, secular liturgy that are kind of like people who are thinking like, we, we know there's a problem. We have to admit that there's a problem, that there's something very, very good and compelling about Catholic liturgy, not just Catholic liturgy, liturgy. There's something good about it that, and it's transforming and it's changing and you really can't get away from it. Like you just, you just feel different when you go back. And even if you don't believe in anything anymore, it just still feels different when you go back to a church. Um, and so they, he's, these guys are like trying to capture that and say like, how do we do this now? And so that's kind of what I, I think about for the, this kind of future setting that like when they go out to meals, there's a ritual that people would drink together, have speeches, have, uh, have talks, have past food, past wine, that there's kind of a, a pattern to what they're doing. Um, I talk, I kind of, there's bowing in the book. There's kind of all these kinds of formulas um, that uh, part of what it means to be human is, is again, uh, not just words, right? It's not just concepts. It's, it's that we really are formed by our actions. And so the action of bowing and kneeling and sitting together and passing food to each other and drinking from the same cup really does change us. And that's something that Warren does in the book too. Um, and it's restorative. I think it's restorative just to be with others. And, um, there's, there's a whole arc, you know, he, he tries to escape, right. He tries to be by himself as much as possible and yet he can't escape others. And that's, that is a key part of what keeps him alive, right. It's just this constant encounter with other people. Um, and having that ritualized, having that formalized, uh, in those kind of dinner gatherings, I think is a key part of, uh, a key part of a, a fulfilled existence. Yeah. I think that's, uh, all super powerful. I feel like to maybe keep, keep some details of the book, a mystery to readers to entice them to, to, to want to read this book. Um, I'll just sort of have a, a, a wrap up question. I know you, you kind of mentioned, um, some, ideas that you're thinking about for, for a potential next book. But uh, so 
what can my readers be on the the lookout for you? So now that what's sort of like the next philosophical project now that you've quote unquote tackled death? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, death never really goes away for us, at least not yet. Yeah, not it's for us. Future, yeah, in the future. Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm working on that book on nihilism, um, and you know, it, it's really going to be the kind of working with those figures and more, uh, Nietzsche, Heidegger, uh, maybe a little more Jean-Luc Marion, but um, those, that's what I'm going to be doing for a while, just kind of thinking through that. Um, there's a project I want to do on Kanye um, and connecting him, with, <laughs> connecting him with Wagner, that uh, Nietzsche's got this book where he criticizes Wagner and everything like that. So I wanted to, I thought like, well, that makes so, so much sense to kind of criticize this kind of popular narrative. Um, that he like kind of it's it's pretty interesting connection actually that, that Nietzsche's like Wagner makes this shift towards talking about salvation where he went from this kind of secular figure and Nietzsche uh, Kanye does the same thing where he's like had all this kind of secular stuff he still had Jesus walks and stuff like but then he makes this shift to uh, all this Christian music and it's all this, uh, talk, talk about salvation uh, now I'm Episcopal priest I'm okay with talking about Christian stuff obviously but uh, the kind of the the you know, what is the content? What is the message? What is the takeaway? How does it affect culture? That's a, that's a big question for me. Um, so yeah, I'll be continuing that. I've got another novel that I hopefully finish on a different topic, but, um, uh, hopefully that'll come out in the next couple of years too. So. That's really cool. I'm really, really looking forward to philosophy of Kanye. <laughs> that'll be, yeah, that'll that'll be fun. fun. And at least at the time of, of this recording, uh, the the band The Weeknd just came out with a with an album, and it like has a lot of like uh, real poetry references. Okay, so that's, been, that's been a sweet joy. So I I, I hope. All right, I love The Weeknd. I will, I will catch up on this album. All right, excellent. But cool. Um, I think I'll just we'll we'll end there, and I'll thank you again for for writing this really cool and interesting. It'll be a difficult read book. And uh, thanks for talking about it with me. Great. Thank you for, so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you about it.